Hello, and welcome to the CEO Podcast. I'm your host, Rohan. And co-host, Connor. And in this podcast, we talk to entrepreneurs to deconstruct their identity, their unique perspective, and how that impacts the way they run their businesses. In this episode, we had the pleasure of talking with Tom Sosnoff. Tom is a serial entrepreneur who has built and sold multiple billion-dollar empires. His first major project was Thinkorswim, which he sold to TD Ameritrade for $700 million. Today, it runs about half of their transactional business. His current project is Tastyworks, which is an online brokerage firm where customers can trade securities, stocks, and invest in any funds they want. He's also working on integrating crypto into it as well. And lastly, he received EY Entrepreneur of the Year Midwest Award in 2014. In this insightful conversation, Tom talks about his identity, advice for young professionals, the future of banking through crypto, and a whole lot more. Our conversation begins with him talking about his parents. So let's get into it. My mom was a grad student at Columbia. So Columbia's in, I don't know if you know New York City, but Columbia's in like uh, 125th Street and Morningside Drive. It's kind of, you know, in what was Harlem at the time. But um, yeah, my mom was a grad student at Columbia, Barnard actually, and um, uh, studying art. And um, my dad was... Uh, my dad was a civil rights attorney and so they, and he was an attorney in New York and he, he went to Yale. And um, so we, I, I grew up in the, it's kind of like, you know, I mean, I didn't grow up there. I, I lived there for a couple of years and then we moved to about 20 miles away to the suburbs. Oh, nice. So you didn't go to high school in New York then? No, went to high school 20 miles outside of New York. Cool. Cool. You know, uh, it was, it was not a good, it was, it was like, you know, we, I was part of a project, um, they called it reverse integration, where they, they, um, we, they bust the white kids into a black neighborhood. So we did the opposite. Yeah. And it, was a, it was a test. And um, um, my, my family was very supportive of it, but it wasn't a great experience. But it is what it is. You know, you don't realize when you're a kid. Why, why wasn't it a great experience? It was just a tough school back in the, you know, seventies. It was, you know, things were, it wasn't, it was tough. It was a different world. Well, definitely. Um, you know, and but if I wasn't mistaken, your, your father also taught at, at Yale as well. Yeah. Right? He was an attorney in, in uh, New Haven, um, uh, Connecticut and, and he taught classes at Yale and, um, and my mom ran an art school for like 55 years and, um, and they were both remarried to other people that were, you know, lawyers and architects, whatever. But, um, I'm the only person in my family on this side of family on, in finance. Yeah. So it sounds like they were pretty busy. They probably both led pretty busy lifestyles themselves. And, uh, from, from our research and listening to past interviews and stuff, you, it's, you said you've been on the road for about 17 years. Do you think you kind of feel that busyness as you've gotten older too? I've been on the road since we built Thinkorswim in 1999, 2000. So starting in 2000, I hit the road, you know, building up our businesses and I've been on the road nonstop until for, except for the last year. So, you know, it's, um, that's, I, I kind of miss it. I, I in, a, in, in a weird way, I don't miss it, but in, in other ways, you know, I kind of miss all the interaction, but, um, it's been an interesting career. Let's put it that way. Nice. I guess, I guess that's, the most you can ask for. Um, yeah. Especially when, when, I mean, I know Connor too, like we're, we are at that point where it's like the career conversation is one that's 
often at the top of the top of the stack. And those are things we're always thinking. About. I had no idea what I was going to do when I was your age. When I was, when I was, how old are you? Twenty. Yeah. Yeah. Same. Yeah. So when I was twenty, um, it was 1977, and I went to, um, I applied for this program because I was studying. Um, my major was political science, and I was really into. Um, I was going to school in Albany, and that's where the state capital is in New York. So um, I figured, you know, I would intern in the, you know, state, state legislature, and um, um, and I was really interested in not so much in politics, but more in like kind of you know, lobbyist and and the inner workings of political systems, international politics. So I applied for some program, and I got accepted to be an intern in the House of Commons in in the UK. It was the first program where American kids would be interns in the House of Commons. And so I was 20 years old and uh, went to the UK and um, for about eight months and interned in the House of Commons, which was great for a pretty powerful labor backbencher. And then I came back to the US and then interned in state legislature in New York. And I was positive I was gonna be in, you know, something to do with politics. And then I've spent my entire career in finance, like every day. Wow, what what was that transition like? Was there a turning point where you realized that this nah. is what I want to do with my life? Because you're young. What only reason I'm telling you the story is because, like, it's hard when you're 20 to really know, you know, what you're going to end up doing when you're, you know, you know, when you get older. Because you're going to go. I mean, right now you can learn as much as you can possibly learn. You can network as much as you can network. You can differentiate yourself as much as possible. But, you know, ultimately you're going to seek the best opportunity. It's like, it's like a draft, you know, for, for um, college draft for players and sports. Um, it's a lot of the best available player. Like a lot of times, you know, you, you can be trained for the perfect um, job, but something comes along or the perfect profession, but a certain opportunity comes along and you got to take it, you know? So, so it, it, it's hard to, know exactly what you're going to do when you're 20. Let's put it that way. Yeah, you're telling me. <laughs> so how did you know that that was the opportunity for you? Was it, did it like come from the inside? Were other people telling you this is what you well, should do? It's, the world's a different place now. 1979, when I graduated college, um, it was the middle of a really nasty recession and there weren't a lot of jobs. So all the kids getting out of school, nobody had, there was no interviews, like no job offers, no interviews, nothing. I mean, we were all like, you know, what the fuck do we do now? And not, you know, like we just spent four years now, now what are we going to do? And I got a job interview and they made me an offer on the spot, you know, it, for a, for a really good brokerage firm that was in New York city. And so, you know, I didn't even think about it. I just took it because I didn't have any other offers. I didn't even have any other interviews, you, you know, so it wasn't, it wasn't like a, an impossible decision. It was like, you know, Oh my God, they just made me an offer. I'll take it. And then I didn't, you know, and then I just, you know, networked and then ended up in Chicago. And, you know, that was my entire career. I've been here 40 years now, but like, you just don't know is my point. I, I think that the best advice I could give anybody that's like your guy's age is, you know, like, don't, don't take a hard line, you know, be flexible. And um, when my, um, so my daughter went to IU and um, she was, um, she was a major in like, you know, communications and PR, different things. I forgot the name of the, the school there, but one of the, you know, schools. And 
when she got out of school, I was like, listen, you know, you go find a job with a startup because I, I think that's going to give you the best experience, even though she had other offers because the economy was strong. You know, I said, I really like to see you with a startup. And then eventually she came and worked with us because there was an opportunity to work with some really smart women who were, you know, I thought could be role models for her. My son went to NYU. He went to, he was in film school at Tisch, which is like their film school. And, um, and after school, you know, he wanted to be in that industry. So he moved to LA. And then as soon as he got there, he hated that film business in LA. So he went, he, but he went to work for a startup, loved business. And now he's in grad school at USC at night and working during the day for, as a strategist for Uber. So like, you know, like, like he completely pivoted after school. My point is, you know, he was studying film and ended up in business school now. And he's a strategist and like his passions are, you know, crypto and something else, you know, whatever, and, and business strategy and things like that. And my daughter was never into finance and now she's a chief compliance officer, you know, so you just don't know. It's my point. Right. I think maybe where that's coming from, you know, it's interesting you say that because I don't know, as a student, I feel like there's this, there's this pressure to specialize much earlier on than I think it once was. And at the same time, while people are specializing earlier, there's also much more options to specialize in as, a, as an individual. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, so the reason for that is the re the real reason for that, Ron, is just because school is a lot more expensive today and it has, it's taken on a little bit different meaning, you know, I mean, whether your parents are, you know, helping you or paying for it or, or not at all, you know, like when I went to school, um, maybe it cost a couple thousand dollars a year. So, so we didn't feel we had an obligation, you know, cause we didn't borrow any money. We didn't, you know, there was no debt involved. And so I didn't feel I had an obligation other than a personal obligation to my parents, you know, who both went, you know, for higher education and grad school and they were ridiculously smart, you know, like other than, other than to please them, but not like, I didn't have the same, you know, I could go anywhere I wanted to, in other words. But I think today with the different, with the high, the high costs and there's a lot more pressure on kids to be specialized, you know, I, I do think it's different today. Yeah, definitely. Sometimes as a generalist, I feel like the clock is ticking all the time, you know, and it's like, Okay, I gotta I gotta pick something real quick, but I yeah. think you're right. that it is a wine. We didn't even have entrepreneurship. The word entrepreneurship, I never even heard that word until I was in my forties. You know, so it didn't even exist. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it's, it seems to be somewhat of a new wave now, especially with all this investing frenzy going on. Everybody's yeah, trying sure. to make themselves, all that stuff. Yeah. I mean, when I was an entrepreneur, because I I've been on my own since 1981. As soon as I got that job, by the way, I only lasted six months and I quit it and moved to Chicago to go off on my own with no money and no idea what was going on here. So, so I've never worked for anybody except when we got bought out by TD Ameritrade was the first time I ever had a job actually getting a paycheck. I never even cashed a paycheck for two years. I had like, you know, a couple of million dollars sitting in a drawer. I never even touched it because I wasn't used to getting a paycheck. So like, you know, I, um, it's it's a different world when you work for yourself. It it really is. And and I've been um, you know, I've been working for myself since 1981. So I don't really ever think about it, you know, as far as that kind of pressure. Definitely. That's awesome. So um we're gonna give you a quick outline of what we want to cover in this conversation. Let's go, just talk about it. I don't care. Cool. But before I do, how's our audio sounding? Are we clear to you? 
Um, yeah, you're okay. You're not great, but you're okay. It's um, uh, occasionally it like, you know, it um, uh, occasionally it just, uh, it, it's, it's pretty good. Okay. It's not perfect. That's all. Okay. Works for me. We're getting, maybe by episode five, we'll have the microphones and the studio set up or we can yeah. just borrow yours. <laughs> uh, cool. So three themes we want to get through identity, differentiation, and then crypto. Um, and we're going to go through a variety of topics. Um, but I think a good place to start, unless you want to add anything else and we can get into it. Cool. A good place to start would be with identity. But before we get into identity, Tom, um, you know, I'd love to introduce you, but we heard that you don't like introductions. Why don't you like introductions? Because, okay, I, it's not that I don't like, like, like I give a lot, a lot of speeches. I'm not bragging about it. I'm just saying that's what I do. I'm on the road and I do a lot of things. And so, so I like, like, you know, and, and they, every place they read off the same kind of introduction. And I feel like it was written like 25 years ago by, by some PR person that, you know, it's, it's horrible. Um, I mean, fine. If you want it, you could do whatever you want. Like, I, I don't care. I'm, I'm more about just like, let's get into it. And, you know, you can set it up however you want, but if you want to do an introduction, go ahead. I don't care. It's your show. Cool. Um, and do you ever do introductions about yourself? Though? No. And why, why is that? Cause I don't know, because, you know, most of the places, most of the talks I give, somebody's already set it up, you know, to, 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 to fill up the, you know, to fill up the room, you know, we have a pretty big following we've developed over the last two decades. So we're usually, you know, almost every event we do is full. So I don't really, you know, I don't worry. I don't know. I let other people sell it, that kind of thing. Yeah, definitely. I guess it's a lot easier to give a talk when everybody in the room already knows who you are. Yeah. Like, you know, like, like I always kind of find it kind of bogus when somebody goes up there and starts telling you about their accomplishments. Like, I don't, I don't, you know, tell me your damn story. I mean, whatever I'm here for, that's what I want to hear. I don't want to hear about your accomplishments. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, let's actually even zoom back, zoom out from the accomplishments. Before the accomplishments of Tom Sosnoff, there is Tom Sosnoff himself. Um, and you mentioned a little bit earlier in the conversation about, you know, your upbringing, but we'd like to dig in a little bit into your identity. What makes you who you are? You talked about your parents earlier, how they were both academics. One of them actually um, was a civil rights lawyer. Did your parents have a big impact on who you are as a person? Is that where the busyness comes from? Or were you more self-directed as you grew up? You know, I mean, it's kind of weird. I'm one of these people that believes that, you know, um, sometimes you get good kids from good parents and sometimes you get good kids from bad parents. And, and sometimes you have great parents and bad kids. You know, like, I'm, I'm not sure that there's, I mean, obviously it helps if your parents are supportive and helpful and smart and all that kind of stuff. Um, uh, I mean, my parents definitely helped, I guess, you know, in every which way, but um, I, I'm not sure that, um, I mean, they can only do so much. As parents, we can, I mean, I have kids, we can only do so much. I mean, you, you basically, I mean, you teach your kids it's really important to work really hard. Like both of my kids are like workaholics. I love it because they bust their ass and, you know, they could easily have taken, um, you know, the Trustafarian route and that kind of thing. And they didn't. And so, you know, they both work their butts off like 15, 16 hours a day type thing. So I love that part. So they got that, you know, that part of the work ethic, which I think is cool. 
Um, but, you know, beyond that, I mean, they really, you know, they are their own people. You know, I kind of feel like that. I've kind of went my own path type thing. Nice. And yeah, yeah. So, so beyond just upbringing, you might say that what, what actually contributes to how people like to operate in their life and in business is more about the decisions they make themselves rather than what someone told them. Yeah. Like, you know, you know, like neither of my parents were risk takers, you know, and, and, and I think I'm a risk taker, you know, so like neither of my parents, I mean, my mom was an entrepreneur, I guess, cause she ran her own school, but it was a little different. And, um, they're both very, um, they're both very artistic. They're both very, um, much more socially conscious. They were, um, they were better humans than I am. You know, I, I create value in other ways. Um, uh, you know, my dad was pretty much a socialist, you know, he would have given away everything, you know, I mean, it, it's a it's a different world. They come from a different, they're different people than me, you know. So, um, yeah, I'm, I, I, that's my best way to answer that. Nice, and, and that's helpful. Um, but what we're trying to get at here is, you are the kind of person that will work your first job when the country is in a great recession, and quit after six months to go start a life somewhere else um, with no money. Where does that come from? Is that something you've always had or is that? Yeah, that's, that's just a risk that, that I'm, I'm completely open to risk even today. Like, like I, I will risk virtually everything I have all the time. Why? Because, Because I don't look at, because I don't think of things as life's too short to worry about, you know, like, like, what am I saving everything for? You know, um, I'm not a good philanthropist i'm not a good um i'm better at creating economic opportunity for people like by creating jobs and creating good companies and building legacies that way than i am other people are better at you know my dad was great at giving free when when i was young you know he moved to mississippi for two years to to give free legal advice you know he was the only jew and Mississippi in an all black, you know, county giving free legal advice. And, and, um, you know, that's what he wanted to do. I couldn't do that. And under any sort, like, it's just not me, you know, but, but I can create a thousand jobs. Yeah, cool. So, so in that sense, uh, versus like gambling, a lot of people think of risk as gambling, you have a lot of faith in your personal abilities. And so it's not, it's not like gambling to you. It's like, I'm just going to do this. It's fine. I like to gamble, but I do consider, I love gambling, but I do consider risk. I do consider gambling and risk to be two very different things. Risk is about making a decision. Gambling is about having fun. There's no, there's no, there, there's no edge in gambling. There, there's an edge in decision-making. You know, there's, there's some people that can make decisions and other people that can't make decisions. And I think life is very favorable for people that can make decisions. I think when it comes to gambling, it's very mechanical. It's just negative edge to, you know, you have negative edge, the house has a positive edge, but it's fun. You know, you can, you can, you can get loud and you can have crazy fun for a short period of time. And, you know, that's something different, but I, you know, I like them both. Nice. And you mentioned decision-making, which I think is a really interesting point to bring up because you're right. Some people are quick at making decisions. Other people stand in front of the fast food sign, you know, holding up the line while they pick what to order. Um, 
And risk tolerance definitely is a factor in that in training your decision making. But is it something that is trained over time? Oh, and yes. So how have you, like, what have you done yeah. to help improve your yeah. decision? Risk, decision making, processing, brain processing speed, um, risk assessment is absolutely a learned skill. It's not something that, you know, nobody, you only are born with a limited amount of that because you, you don't know. And then over time, you begin to develop, um, you know, you begin to develop your ability to, you know, learn to take risk and learn to make decisions and, and, and learn to process decision-making. And so um, I, for me, you know, it's always been something that I've loved, but it got, I got better and better at it over the years from, from trading. So is it the repetition that helps yeah, you sure. evaluate? Yeah. You know, it's making, you know, most people go through their lives making a few hundred to a few thousand decisions that have a, an emotional and a monetary impact. You know, I went through my life making a few million of those decisions because of, because all I did was trade every single day, all day long for, you know, eight hours a day, my entire life. So everything I did had an emotional and a monetary impact. And that's all I did. So every day was, you know, another, you know, thousand, two thousand, five thousand decisions every single day. That okay, impacts so, you. so in a sense, like as you better understand the risk that you're taking on, it becomes much easier to make those decisions. Like you already know. Of the course. Of course. Oh. It's the same. It's the same for superstar athletes. It's the same for the most successful business people. You know, um, when you start interviewing more and more people on this podcast, you will see a trend. And as you get in front of more and more, you'll, you will interview lots of CEOs that are struggling. You know, they're early stage CEOs. They're learning their business. They're not used to making decisions. Like you said, your last podcast was, was a couple of new CEOs from Goldman, stuff like that. Their decision-making skills are going to be in their infancy because they're just, you know, starting out then you're going to meet some billionaires down the road and you're going to see that their decision-making is instantaneous because they've done it a gazillion times. And there is, it, there's a very different, you'll see it. We interview a ton of people on, on tasty trade, you know, segment called bootstrapping, which is just, we've done 2,500 interviews of CEOs. And within two seconds, you can tell based on articulation and, and their ability to explain what they do and, and who they are and, and how their businesses work. And you can tell in two seconds, you know, who the great ones are. And um, it all comes down. I, I believe success is an absolute derivative of decision-making skill. And, and again, I say the same thing for great athletes. You know, Tom Brady is 43 years old, yet he wins a Super Bowl because his brain processes decision-making at five times the speed of any other athlete. Michael Jordan was, he was physically gifted, but he was also incredible with his brain ability to see, you know, same with Larry Bird, you know, just take, you know, a, a lot slower than Michael Jordan, not nearly as physically gifted, but he could see things that nobody else could see. Magic Johnson, the same way you can go through it over the years, just great players in basketball and football and all, all their sports that just could process things, you know, way faster than anybody else and which made them into legitimate superstars. Yeah. Um, that's a really interesting point. And, and, you know, for a star athlete or someone on the floor every day, that makes a lot of sense. But then you translate it to, let's say, a student or someone who isn't making, you know, 100 or 200 or 300 decisions a day um, is the best way to become better at decision making just to make more decisions. Yeah, of or, course. And if so how do you build that into your life? Yeah. Not well, having like 
that's the great thing about you guys. When we, when I was 20, um, the only decisions I could make were like on a golf course. If I was playing golf for money with somebody, you know, like, I mean, I'm not kidding. Like literally we, we couldn't, there was nothing we could do to really increase our decision-making skill. You guys now, you know, I mean, you can have a crypto account, you can trade online. I mean, you could do a, a, uh, you can gamble like, you know, we couldn't do anything. There was literally nothing we could do to, to create that except, except play games and gamble with our friends and things like that. And um, today there's, you know, you have 10,000 choices. So no, I think the world's changed and it's, a, it's more competitive now. And there is, um, but there's a lot more opportunity to make decisions. Yeah. Cool. Um, so how is that decision-making of yours? Well, there's a couple of things. You mentioned decision-making, you mentioned your ability to accept uncertainty, your risk tolerance. How have those parts of your identity translated to the way you've led your business? Um, whichever one that is at, at Thinkorswim or Tasty Trade. Um, the easy, easiest way for me to explain that is to say, that every time we have an opportunity to take more risk, we do it. So like you would think that you get to a certain point where you like, you say, oh, you know, now it's cool. I can just go live on an island. I can go like, take it easy. I can, I can just dial it in, you know, just mail it in type thing. And what you find is exactly the opposite is that you, you don't even want to slow down. Like you work harder as you get older and you just, and you keep pressing it because it's almost like a drug and every chance you have to take risk, you know, like I'm already, you know, like, what am I going to do next type thing? Okay. That's, that's really interesting. And, and that's something that I, I mean, we're also thinking about too, is like, how do we make more decisions in the right? Um, in a lot of ways, like there are ways for us to do that. And, it translates clearly to the things that we do. Well, I still, I force myself to make like, you know, I mean, today I only made 72 trades, but I try to force myself to make a hundred trades a day still. And while I'm running the company, just to get me stuff to do. Right. And, and that, that shows a lot of self-discipline too. Is that or very insanity or insanity? You take your choice. You can call it whatever you want, or it's a sickness, yeah. you know, it's a drug, whatever, but you know, I'm a junkie. So, okay. So does that, does that kind of play into your passion? Would you say you have a, a passion for that per se? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I, well, I, I, I thrive on, you know, on situations where other people, you know, I thrive on volatility. I thrive on what I consider to be opportunity where other people get scared. Yeah. That's something for sure. But that, but it, it's not, but I view it differently because I've been there enough, you know? Yeah, that, that does make a lot of sense. Um, and for you, with the way you think, those are activities or situations that you like to be in. But for someone else, that might not be the case. And, you know, that leads, back, leads us back to what we were talking about earlier is that interest or that passion even, whatever you want to call it, um, you know, you, you ended up finding your drug, something that you, you know, are a junkie of and you got something out of that. Um, for other people looking for that thing, that thing that gets them going, you know, is that similar to decision-making in that you just have to try as many things until it clicks? Or what advice do you have for people to find their, you know, poison? Like, 
I don't, I don't know. I don't know if it's something you can, um, again, I, it, it's really hard when you're super young because you haven't, like at your age, you haven't networked yet. You, you're just networking among your friends that you're meeting at school for the first time. You know, you're networking um, in your learning in different professions and then you're going to do internships and all this kind of stuff. And you're going to, you're going to start to, for the first time, build what we call professional relationships and things like that, which is going to open up some doors for you and do things, you know, of that nature. But as, as you get older now, every year, it's going to become more and more important you know, to take the next step in that networking process to ultimately figure out, you know, who you are, what you're going to become and where there's an opportunity. You know, all you can hope for is that the right door opens and that, you know, whatever, like when I got my first job out of college, I, I didn't even know anything about the stock market. I, kn- I didn't know. I, I literally knew nothing. I just, you know, bullshitted my way in and got the job offer. And then when I was there, I was like, okay, this is pretty interesting. But as soon as I got there, I started networking and met these guys and then and then left immediately just to go move to Chicago because that seemed to me. And then I've stayed here for 40 years, you know, because that seemed like that was the cool thing to do. I like you'll you'll know when it's right. I mean, listen, you're studying entrepreneurship and you're studying finance. And so you have an idea of what you kind of like. It's just it's very difficult to be an entrepreneur. It's cool to study entrepreneurship. I wish they had entrepreneurship when I went to school. They didn't. But you're not going to be a 22-year-old entrepreneur that changes the world. Like, you're not going to be the next Mark Zuckerberg. I mean, there is a tiny chance. But realistically, you know, and I talk about this all the time when I talk to, you know, different university groups. If you take 100 kids, and how many kids in your program? We were about like 100, 150. Right. We take the 100 kids in your program. I mean, there's going to be outliers on both sides. You know, 15 or 16 are going to completely fail. 15 or 16 are going to be superstars somehow. And everybody else is going to fall somewhere inside that distribution curve. Some above the, the, some above the mean, some below it. But as that happens, you know, what, you, what you're hoping for is that you fall somewhere where you can take the next steps. Like, like again, we're not going to, the likelihood of the next Zuckerberg coming out of this is it's it's not that's not the play the play is that you know you start to develop start to figure out what you love to do like I've been lucky for 40 years every day I go to work I'm fired up like the bell goes off in the morning I'm like wow this is cool I can't believe I've done this my whole freaking life everybody else bitches about going to work and bitches about all this shit and for me every day 8 30 in the morning bell goes off I'm like hey this is cool every single day even on our platforms today so like, I'm lucky, you know? And so if you find something you really like and, and, and it makes you feel good about it, then you're, in the, then you're doing the right thing. Yeah, that's really cool. On the note of uh, kind of finding personal enjoyment, uh, you've talked about uh, being into crypto. I know we both are into blockchain, crypto and all that yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I was recently reading up, uh, you guys did a partnership with Zero Hash this year or yeah. last year to try and get a crypto platform going. Yeah. Could you kind of t- talk a little bit about that and how it's going? So there were these, there were these two crazy young kids that went to MIT, um, that, uh, went to MIT, um, through their MBA program. They were from England. They were like 21 years old. I don't know, 21, 22. And they cold called me. They came to my office into our studios 
and they sat down and they said, hey, I got this great idea. They were literally right out of school, your age. I mean, like 22. But they had just finished the MBA program. I don't know how they got through it all and like, you know, whatever. They did it somehow. They're smart. So they came. They said, we got this idea to build this cannabis exchange. I go, <laughs> I, I like the idea, but I go, nobody's going to give you any money. And because, you know, you got no track record and you got, you got a good idea and you're smart, but the regulators aren't going to, then nobody's going to give you, you're never going to get this done. And they're like, um, they're like, well, tell us, tell us how we can get you involved. Like, like make me, make us an offer where, how would you get involved with us? Like, I'll tell you what, if you go out and you raise X number of millions of dollars, like, let's say you raise $2 million, I'll throw in a hundred grand and then I'll, and I'll, 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 I'll help you guys a little bit. I'll mentor you a little tiny bit, but whatever. And so they went out and they raised two and a half million dollars. I don't know how they did it. I was in shock. So I gave them the check for a hundred grand and they started this business. They spent a couple of years doing it until they were about 25. And then they realized, you know what? We, it's just too hard for us. Like, like the regulators aren't going to give us approval. We don't have the track record, all the stuff I originally thought, but whatever. And they ended up selling the technology they had built and something to somebody else. They scratched the whole trade. They got all their money back. They paid all the investors back. That's it. They started another company, but now they had some experience and they started another company. And they said this time they were able to raise like $20 million and it was a crypto exchange. And they grew way too fast. They weren't thinking it through. They hired like 50 people. They, they were growing out of control, but they weren't making any money. So they kept asking me to invest. I'm like, listen, you know, I love you guys, but I don't like this model. So I'm not going to invest. Then they almost went out of business. And then they came back and said, listen, we're almost out of business. Can we talk? We're going to run out of money next month. I said, sure. So I invited them over to my house. We sat outside the beginning of the pan, middle of pandemic, whatever, last year, six months ago, nine months ago. And I said, I really think you guys are brilliant, but you know, you fucked up. You spent $20 million, you blew all the money. You don't, you know, I'll invest. I'll give you guys, we'll, we'll our company, we'll give you guys $3 million, but which will which will get you back on your feet, but you've got to cut your team down to you've got to cut your expenses down, which are out of control, down to by like seventy percent. You got to you got to cut your team down to like fourteen people, thirteen people, and and you've got to get rid of the businesses that don't work, like this exchange and all this other crap, and just focus on what you're good at, like this this crypto settlement. It's got potential, and they said, Tom, it's going to explode, and I'm like, maybe. And better than that, I'm going to let you guys, we'll do our crypto through you. And I'll introduce you to a lot of people in the industry. Now they're worth, this is just six months ago. They cut their expenses down. They cleaned up their business model. They focused on the one thing they were good at. They've now got us and TradeStation and MoneyLion and, and a bunch of other firms, like 13, 14 firms they're going to probably make a million dollars this month and they're probably worth a hundred million dollars now. This is six months ago. Crazy, but it took them a while. And now there are still less than 30, but that's why 
I did it because I wanted to learn about crypto, number one, and also because I felt like they were worthy of it. They were really smart and worth the investment, but they just need a little help pushing them over. And they were in the right spot, but they needed the connections. They needed the, they needed the push. You know, you know what I mean? And at 22, it's really hard. At 30, they were ready. They, they had felt the pain. You know, the old expression, you got to kind of walk before you can crawl type thing. You know, they jumped in the deep end, not knowing how to swim at first. And now they, they really turned it around. And now I think they're going to be superstars and they have the potential to build, I don't know, multi-hundred billion dollar company, a multi-hundred million dollar company. And, you know, potentially, I don't know, you know, kill it in the crypto world. Right. That's, that's really incredible. And I, I think you brought up a couple of really interesting points there. One is, you know, the growth of people, like you mentioned, having those experiences and maybe improve your decision-making in the future, but two, also how crypto has sort of evolved, even in the short period of the past six months, you know, these days there are tons of exchanges, new blockchains, new crypto projects coming up. And it seems to be like democratizing a lot of the things that were previously controlled by geography, right? How do you view the expansion or the mass adoption of, of, crypto generally as it comes to the people and also like the craze of like exchanges because there are a lot of crypto exchanges popping up as well. Yeah. So, well, the crypto exchanges are going to have a really hard time because the, um, I mean, crypto is in its infancy. So the crypto exchanges right now are able to, um, uh, they're able to survive on a, on the fringes of the business. I mean, obviously there's some that do really well, of course, you know, like Coinbase and different places around the world. But then there's others that are, you know, like the one in Turkey yesterday, the guy where he ran off with $2 billion and all this kind of stuff. I mean, there's a lot of fringe players too. Eventually, the big firms and the banks and everybody else, I mean, the game's about to change. And with firms like Tasty getting into crypto and, and all the major firms in the US will be in crypto pretty soon, there's going to be no reason to use crypto exchanges. I mean, we can do things much more efficiently. We can, um, we have better technology. It's safer. It's, um, uh, it's, it's more transparent. The customer doesn't have to worry about anything while it's passwords, you know, specific blockchain or anything. Um, the, and there's no question that tying in a single, um, tying in a single amount of capital to multiple asset classes is the wave of the future in my opinion. And so where the US is behind is because we have horrible regulatory bodies that have not opened up, you know, to the idea of um, secure tokens and digitized investing at this point yet. But where the that's where the rest of the world's ahead of us. Where the rest of the world's behind us is they have no liquid assets to trade. So all everything trades in the US. So like, you know, you can use Rohan, you can use India as an example. Like the markets are untradeable there. You know, like you can use, you can basically, you can go anywhere, you know, they have huge dollars and a huge population, but untradeable markets, you know, except for a couple of products. It's the same thing in Singapore. It's the same thing in Hong Kong. It's, it's basically the same thing in China. You know, if you want to trade in liquid markets, you have to trade in the US. And because of that, we have a huge advantage. We just can't be blocked by the regulators who, um, who don't understand the need A for speculation, B for multi-asset classes, and, and C for the need for strategic multi-asset classes, which is like derivatives on alternative assets. The, the, 
the regulators will not be able to reverse the trend towards um, tokenized assets and digitized assets going forward. It's an irreversible trend. And it's going to change the way we, the products we invest in and the way we invest. We're going to go to 24 hours a day. We are going to be able to trade things that we've never traded before, including events, politics, sports, and everything else using various tokens. And it's going to be 24 seven. And it's going to open it up to the whole world because you're going to be able to move money now using digital assets instantaneously. So we're going to be able to cut out all these banks that rip off consumers and you know, it's going to be a whole new world. Like imagine you guys can trade, you know, you guys will be able to do whatever you want in China or India or Russia in, in, in crypto instantaneously. And, and you don't have to worry about all these idiotic bank fees and, and currency conversions and clearing and data and everything else. Right. And, and in that way, a lot of people think of banks as the casualty of the crypto movement, right? These central organizations losing control. But in the beginning, you kind of meant you spoke about them as the enablers of the movement by creating central places like exchanges where people can feel, you know, they feel like they can transact securely. What will well, that I think the what? banks I think the banks will be the biggest losers um, because because they are too dumb and too slow and too risk averse and and basically they're too dumb. So I think the big financial institutions, i.e. banks, will be the biggest losers to fintech um, going forward. The biggest winners, if they can keep up with it, will be U.S. financial service companies like brokerage firms because they can expand their product offering, like you know, like what Robinhood's done, like you know, like what we've done. Um, um, and I'm assuming like what Coinbase will do in other places like that. It's just a, it's a, it's really short period of time. You know, we can easily go from high frequency market making um, in options and futures to high frequency market making in digital assets almost overnight. So I think that, I think the brokerage side will benefit. I think the bank side will be the losers in the FinTech world. I think the global crypto exchanges will be the losers because I don't think that they have the capital or the regulatory strength to pull it off. Um, and, and I think some of the global um, brokerage firms will be the winners, you know, because they have, they'll be able to offer multi, you know, multi-asset classes, multi-products, multi-strategies. Yeah, definitely. Um, but like, let's zoom out from like the financial implications of the crypto movement a little and look at like the larger implications on, you know, this digital native world that is being created. Okay. Like, Balaji Srinivasan, the ex-CTO of Coinbase, spoke, like he speaks about blockchain, like, you know, there was mobile and that and the internet was a big thing. And now the next big step in technological yeah. advancement on the yeah. web or whatever that is, is blockchain. Yeah. What is the implication on people in your opinion? You know, well, I think it, I, I do think it, I, I think there's some truth to that. Like, you know, I was really a slow learner because I didn't, um, you know, I read the bullshit and I didn't, you know, at first I, you know, I'm like cryptocurrency, you know, I mean, I bought my first Bitcoin at $200 and, and I was like, and I was like, I couldn't wait to sell it, you know? So like, yeah, I, 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 I didn't really get it and I didn't really understand blockchain. I, I, I don't, I still don't understand it the same way you guys do, but I think I have, you know, for my generation, I think I have a better understanding than 99% of the people, but for your generation, I think I'm in the 1% type thing, you know? Um, 
like when I talk to my kids about it, I, I don't think I'm very um, articulate, but, uh, but I am in, in my world. Um, but yeah, I, I agree. I think it's going to change, you know, um, I think it's going to change the way a lot of us, I think it's going to change a lot of the ecosystems out there. I think it's going to level the playing field. Um, I, I haven't yet been able to figure out the real, like, like in a crazy way, I want to build my own blockchain, but I can't figure out the real, you know, like, I don't know what the hell I would do with it. You know, you know what I'm saying? I don't, I, I don't know. I, I just think it'd be cool, but I don't understand why. Um, uh, and so, so I, I do think that he's right. The CEO of Coinbase is right in the sense that I, I, I don't know if it's exactly like mobile, but I think it's, it's in that direction. It's a fraction of it for sure. Yeah. That's super interesting. Um, and I mean, you know, it's something that's going to be interesting to watch unfold over the next couple of years too, is I mean, within the past six months, we've seen so much change. Now the NFT craze is hit and that's been like, you know, the first maybe widespread adoption on the non-financial um, yeah. level. Yeah. Like the hard part about NFTs is that I don't, I don't understand. I, I get the whole NFT thing, but see, I like fungible assets because fungible assets are tradable to me. Non-fungible assets are a little more difficult because they're, they're kind of like a one-off. But yeah, NFTs are an important advancement. No question about it. How much Bitcoin slash Ethereum do you own? Do I own right now? Today, nothing. Um, uh, I sold, I sold, I was buying a bunch last night and I sold it this morning. Ethereum, Bitcoin, and Litecoin. Um, I bought some on the dip last night, sold it on the rallies. I'm a trader, man. I don't, I don't care about it. <laughs> You know, you know, I, um, I'll trade it all the time, but I don't really, you know, I don't like trading it that much because it's, since it's cash right now on our platform, um, you can't short it. And I like playing both sides of the market. Cool. All right. Just, just wanted to find that out. And now we're going to jump to a quick section of what we call underrated versus overrated. We're going to shoot Fine. some things out there. We want to hear what your thoughts on whether they're underrated, overrated, and maybe why. Um, let's start off with a simple one. Berets, underrated, overrated? Oh, that's, they're, they're underrated. <laughs> why? I don't see a lot of people with berets on these days. I, I know. Well, my hair was long. I didn't want to get, you know, I had to deal with all these people in the world of finance. So I figured out where the berets so just became kind of a signature thing. Um, I don't know. I, I, I don't know why. I don't have an answer. I can't. That's the that's that's a horrible question. I'm gonna pass. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, okay, Bitcoin as an asset that people should hold. Underrated, overrated, holding Bitcoin. Um, digital assets. I think um, there's a very strong mathematical argument for holding digital assets as part of a non-correlated portfolio. I mean. I'm a trader, so it's hard for me to hold anything. I don't think of things in those terms. But if you're asking underrated, overrated, I say underrated. Okay, cool. Um, we saw a video, I think it was five years ago now, where you talked about, you know, turning 60 and how that was a landmark for you and how 60 is the new 40. Retirement, underrated or overrated? I don't even believe in it. 
Why not? There's no such thing. So I'm 64 and um, I, uh, I, I'm never, never retiring. Like there's no, I mean, I might get fired, you know, like, like our company just got bought out. We're going to close the deal in a, in a month or so. So they might fire me, but you know, that won't stop me. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I'm never going to retire. What am I going to do? I'll just die. You know, so like, you know, no, I, 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 you can't retire. If you retire, what's the point? If you love what you do, what are you going to find that you love even more? You know, by retirement, what am I going to do? I don't want to go move to Arizona and live on a golf course or move to Florida and sit by the beach or whatever. I can't do that. True. But I think that's a little bit of what makes you different than the average person. Cause most people are, once they hit 60, they're ready to escape their work life because they hate their job and this and that. I think that's a big thing that's different with you is your job is your life. You love it so much. You would do yeah, it until my job is my life. These are where my, I mean, I work with my friends, you know, like it's, you know, like, like it's really important to us. We, we, all my friends, we work together. Like we don't like, it's not like, you know, like, I just keep hiring my friends, you know, just, you know, and, and then we form partnerships and then we do other things. I think it's really important to hang out with the people that, you know, that, that make you smile, but no, I'm never retiring. I'm going to die working. That's nice. That's funny that you say that too. Cause our, our next one was um, working with your friends or starting businesses with your friends. Yeah. Yeah. It's important. It's really important. Um, I, you know, I know lots of people say, you know, never take a partner and don't do this and that, you know, um, I don't believe in any of the norms. I mean, obviously if your friends aren't really your friends, that's a different thing, but I think it's a lot easier to, um, I, I think sometimes it's nice to have a second opinion. I think sometimes it's nice to be around people that you, you know, that you like to work with. Um, uh, you know, I don't believe in a lot of the norms. Like, I don't believe in, you know, like, I don't believe that, you know, I believe you should dilute and raise capital. I believe you should, um, you know, you should definitely hang out with your friends and work with your friends and, you know, build things with your friends. I believe you should take, you know, an extraordinary amount of risk, you know, and not play anything conservatively. I believe that you shouldn't, you know, I believe that you should never try to solve a problem. Like most entrepreneurs, the first thing they tell you in either in academia or in entrepreneurial school, wherever that is, you know, like, you know, mentoring is what problem are you trying to solve? I think that's idiotic advice. Don't try to solve a problem. Build something. Don't worry about anybody else's built or whatever. Don't, don't, we don't give a shit about anything else anybody's done. Like you can have the exact same business as us. I don't care. Copy everything we do. I don't care. You can't do it better. And um, you know, I don't ever try to solve anything. Just, just go, I don't even care what our, we never even look at our competitors. Just go build your own stuff. Go do your own thing. That's awesome. And actually, I think that's a great place to end the conversation too. Um, go do your, go do your own thing. Yeah, so, just go do your own thing, man. Whatever, whatever gets you excited about, you know, waking up in the morning and, and makes you want to work for the next 20 straight hours, you know, go do that. Thank you guys so much for tuning into the second episode of the CEO podcast. I just wanted to give one final thanks to Tom Sosnoff for coming on. I think he gave some incredible insight and uh, I hope you guys enjoyed that as well. And remember entrepreneurs, stay innovative. Have a good one.